Hi, I'm David Freudberg. We here at Humankind are trying to strike a balance to make our public radio programs available to you and also to make sure we're able to pay our production costs from office rent to staff time to studio and distribution expenses. The grants we receive from funders you hear named on our programs don't fully cover our operating costs. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep our program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of our homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. Grandfather believed uh, nonviolence is much more than a strategy. Although a lot of scholars today look at nonviolence as a strategy which can be used when convenient and discarded when not, grandfather came to the conclusion that it's much more than a strategy, it's a way of life. We have to learn to think nonviolently, to behave nonviolently, to create an atmosphere of nonviolence if we want nonviolence to succeed. Dr. Arun Gandhi recalls remarkable encounters with his grandfather, Mahatma Gandhi. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. In a century that saw brutality on the march, Two world wars, the spread of totalitarianism, and the development of nuclear arms, Mohandas K. Gandhi offered an approach so radically different that those who opposed him were often utterly confounded. His peaceful tactics, quiet, prayerful message, and unpretentious manner proved it is possible to change the world without resort to physical weapons. Here he is at last, the mystery man of India, Mr. Gandhi dressed as he said he would be, in just his loincloth, even in the chilly climes of Europe. And he's carrying with him his pots and pans, which he declared at the customs. He was trotted around to several receptions. This newsreel report from 1931 didn't quite know what to make of Gandhi, who was then en route to attend a roundtable conference in London. It had been convened by the King of England and would set in motion a process that eventually emancipated India from British colonial domination. Gandhi was the unelected chief strategist of India's struggle for independence and also the nation's unofficial spiritual leader. He believed there's a higher law than that handed down by ordinary rulers. I do dimly perceive that whilst everything around me is ever-changing, ever-dying, there is underlying all that change a living power that is changeless, that holds all together, that creates, dissolves, and recreates. That informing power or spirit is God. I see it as purely benevolent, for I can see that in the midst of death, life persists. In the midst of untruth, truth persists. In the midst of darkness, light persists. 
Hence I gather that God is life, truth, light. He is love. He is the supreme good. It was on a railroad journey in South Africa in 1893 that a fateful experience would alter Gandhi's life. He was 23 years old, a recently graduated barrister who had left India to accept a one-year legal job in South Africa. Gandhi had a first-class ticket and was dressed in a starched shirt and proper suit. But under racial laws, as a man of brown skin, he was forbidden from being seated in any car higher than third class. When Gandhi rebelled, the conductor promptly threw him off the train, an event that would spark his lifelong quest for social justice. A half-century later, Gandhi's grandson Arun would also encounter prejudice. Well, the time I grew up in South Africa, it was the late 30s, early 40s. It was a very bad time when uh, prejudices were bad, and especially since the 40s when the nationalist government came into power, they really institutionalized prejudice and uh, and hate. And so uh, everybody seemed to be hating each other. And, uh, you know, you could see this in the relationships on the streets, with strangers and and so on and so I I grew up in that kind of an atmosphere and it uh, also affected me in the sense that uh, I was beaten up uh, a couple of times uh, by white people and then by black people because they didn't like the color of my skin. Was it pretty bad? Pretty bad, yeah, the bloody nose and all that. But. Uh, there were many other occasions where there were no, no physical violence, but very insulting uh, attitudes, and uh, you know, and that happened all the time. And all that humiliation, I think, just got to me, and I decided uh, I wanted revenge, eye for an eye, revenge. And uh, that's when uh, my parents decided to go to India and give me the opportunity to live with grandfather and uh, hopefully learn something from him. Arun's grandfather Mohandas Gandhi had resettled in India in 1915 after leading nonviolent campaigns in South Africa for racial equality. In India, he would take up the cause of the untouchables, the lowest caste. To identify with the poor, he shed his lawyer's attire, appearing now with a shaved head, a cotton shawl, and sandals. This also allowed Gandhi to practice simplicity, which he thought to be mentally and spiritually virtuous. Gandhi opposed British economic policies that left hundreds of millions of peasants in deep poverty. On many occasions, his peaceful protests would land him in jail. By the mid-1940s, Gandhi was a world figure, living in Sevagram, a village of service he founded in India. There he tried to broker harmony between India's Hindu and Muslim populations, as together they rebelled against Britain. Into this scene arrived his troubled 12-year-old grandson, Arun. I did feel positive vibes coming from him. Uh, although the last time I had seen him was six, when I was six years old, 
and, and I had been told about how great he was and how what great things he has been he had been doing by my parents and I had read about it in newspapers and so on. So I, I was aware that he was somebody special. I didn't realize how special uh, until I met him and saw and saw the adulation of the people around him. And, and, and he had that kind of an aura around him, you know, where you just could not uh, ignore uh, his presence and uh, the, uh, the the positive vibes that he was sending out. Although he is very simple, he is half naked, he is wearing only a little bit of a cloth on, around his waist and he is sitting there in the corner of a room on the floor there. But there is something all around him that uh, is very calming. And very, calming? Yeah, very peaceful kind of thing. And and you just feel from within that connectedness, that, you know, the spiritual um, power. Connectedness with you, with all? Yeah, he had the ability to connect with everybody who came in his presence. And he kind of mesmerized you. And uh, the result was that uh, when he talked to you or when he asked you to do something, even though it was a very difficult thing for you to do, you could not say no to him. Gandhi was worldly wise and also followed strict spiritual practices. He rose at 3.30 each morning, would spend hours in meditation and prayer, observed a vegetarian diet, and over and over read wisdom texts drawn from different traditions. His countrymen gave Gandhi the rare title of Mahatma, or Great Soul. When ethnic tensions in India sometimes flared into violence, he would quietly fast, a technique that more than once caused hotheads to cool off in deference to the beloved leader, Dr. Arun Gandhi. He was a very humble person. In spite of his greatness, he um, paid equal respect to everybody, wherever, whatever standing in life they came from or whatever questions they had. And, you know, on reflection again, I am amazed at how uh, when he was in the midst of such a big crisis, political issues going on and, and the um, division of the country and all that, and yet when somebody came to ask him, uh, what they should do about a headache or a stomachache and, uh, you know, nature cure treatment. He gave them uh, the same amount of uh, time and, and uh, uh, serious attention as he would uh, when a politician came with a issue that uh, related to the whole nation. He treated people with equality. Treated people with equality, yeah. Now, treating people with equality was so much at the core of his mission of racial justice and lifting the dispossessed up. Where does the strength in a person come from to be able to treat people, whether of high or low station, uh, with uh, the same respect and with equality? I think it comes from within, uh, like he would say, that we have to be very humble, we have to uh, 
um, get rid of our ego. It's very often our ego that makes us very aggressive and and um, we think that we are greater than we really are and so we look down upon other people. Uh, he, he said that we must get rid of that ego and, um, and be very humble. Uh, and he would even, uh, he is, his lifelong attempt was to uh, bring his ego down into the dust and he said, you know, just grind it into the dust. And what, what's left if a person becomes extremely humble and reduces the egomania. I think there is a lot left there. You know, we tend to have a very different uh, understanding of humility and humbleness. Uh, We associate it with weakness, and we think that we just allow everybody to walk all over you uh, and not say anything. Uh, It's not that at all. Uh, it, it's a very powerful thing. It uh, it doesn't mean that you allow people to walk over. It doesn't mean that you accept injustice. It only means that you're not going to do to that person what that person has done to you. Won't stoop. Don't stoop to that level. Uh, and, and show that person love uh, instead of uh, brute force and, and respect. And I think that is very disarming, and it requires a lot more uh, courage to be able to do that. We're talking with Dr. Arun Gandhi, grandson of Mahatma Gandhi. You're listening to a Humankind special, Meeting Hate with Love. I'm David Freudberg. For more information, check our website, humanmedia.org. Your grandfather set aside an hour a day for you in one-on-one lessons. I was with him off and on for a period of about 18 months, and uh, almost all the time that I was there, he spent that one hour with me. Sounds like just an amazing gift. Indeed. I often... Uh, feel sad that I wasn't old enough and wise enough to understand what a wonderful period I was going through and what a wonderful gift it was going going to be. Why did he decide to devote so much attention to your own development? I think partly because uh, I came from that troubled background and uh, my parents, I think, were a bit concerned about all of this and so they wanted my grandfather to kind of give me some direction and and some um, understanding and so grandfather felt um, you know it was his responsibility to do what he could. And can you recall for us some of the outstanding lessons, uh, some of the messages, some of the examples that he displayed for you? Well, I think in many ways the first lesson that I learned from him about understanding anger and being able to channel that energy into positive action uh, was a very important lesson. I still think that it's important for everybody to learn because a lot of the violence that we experience in either in our personal life or in our societal life 
uh, is generated by anger. We get angry and we lose our minds and control and we do things and say things that sometimes changes the course of our lives completely. So learning about anger and being able to channel that energy into positive action, I think, is a very important lesson. When he taught me this, he told me that uh, he used the analogy of electricity and he said anger is like electricity. It is just as useful and powerful if it's used intelligently, but it can be just as deadly and destructive if we abuse it. So just as we channel electricity intelligently and bring it into our lives and use it for the good of humanity, we must learn to channel anger in the same way so that we can use that energy for the good of humanity rather than abuse the energy. He asked me to write an anger journal. And he said, every time you become angry about something, don't pour it out on somebody or something. Don't act on in anger but pour it all out in your journal. But write the journal with the intention of finding a solution and then commit yourself to finding a solution. So was that a difficult assignment for a a 12- or 13-year-old to record all of your uh, impulses to anger? It was difficult in the beginning um, because I didn't know how to do this, but he was very patient and he guided me through this and he taught me how to write this journal and and then as I began to understand the uh, the nuances uh, it became a simple thing for me to do and I did this for many years and it helped me understand my anger and uh, channel it effectively. Was the power of that simply noticing the extent of of your anger? Noticing the extent, noticing uh, what could have happened uh, if I had, you know, acted in anger and retorted and did things, uh, how it could have escalated, but how important it was to find a solution that was uh, mutually understandable and agreeable. Another important lesson that I learned from him was uh, about the depth and the breadth of his philosophy of nonviolence. You know, like many people, I was under the impression that nonviolence is the opposite of violence. That as long as we are not going around beating up people and fighting and indulging in wars and all that, that we are nonviolent people. And he made me realize that we are not that all of us, however peaceful we may think ourselves to be, that we are all violent and we are committing violence in different ways. Inwardly violent? Inwardly violent, passively violent. uh, Passive-aggressive. Passive-aggressive violence. And, you know, to make me understand this as a little boy, he made me draw a family tree of violence on the same principles as genealogical tree with passive violence and physical violence as the two offsprings. And every day I had to analyze all my experiences and put them on that tree. If it was the kind of violence where physical force was used against anybody, it would go under physical violence. But if it was the kind of violence where no physical force was used and yet uh, you hurt people, 
directly or indirectly, consciously or unconsciously, that would go under passive violence. So that would be things like calling names, teasing, um, you know, discrimination, oppression, suppression, religious, philosophical, racial, colored prejudice, all of these things that hurt people directly or indirectly would go under passive violence. And when I started doing this and religiously putting it down on that tree, within a few months I was able to fill up a whole wall in my room with acts of passive violence. That, that, you, that you had That I committed. had been committing. And that's when I realized how much passive violence there was in society. And then he explained the connection between the two. He said, we commit passive violence all the time, consciously and unconsciously. And that generates anger in the victim, and the victim then resorts to physical violence to get justice. So it is passive violence that fuels the fire of physical violence. So logically, if we want to put out the fire of physical violence, we have to cut off the fuel supply. And what does it mean to lead a life without passive violence, without the catalysts for Physical. Well, let me put it this way. To practice nonviolence the way Gandhi wanted us to practice it, we have to allow all the positive emotions, positive attitudes to uh, surface and, and to dominate our thinking. Things like respect, love, compassion, understanding, all of these things that we are capable of and we show it off and on at certain times only. But otherwise, we suppress it and allow ourselves to be dominated by negative thoughts like hate and prejudice and discrimination and suppression and suspicion of people and and exploitation and all of these things that we do every day uh, almost, uh, you know, uh, without even a second thought about it. That has to be suppressed. We have to suppress the negativity and allow the positive things to emerge and and display that in our daily life, in our relationships with each other. There has to be that respect and love and understanding and compassion um, for all of human beings and all of creation. The life of Mahatma Gandhi was stirringly portrayed in the Academy Award-winning 1982 film entitled Gandhi, starring Ben Kingsley. Where there's injustice, I've always believed in fighting. The question is, do you fight to change things or do you fight to punish? For myself, I've found we're all such sinners, we should leave punishment to God. What about for people who feel they've been aggrieved, feel that aggression has been perpetrated against them, feel that they've been hurt in relationships, who have trouble letting go of those hurts, how does the Gandhian philosophy apply there? Well, if we don't let go of that hurt and don't find a solution to it, then we are harming ourselves as much as we are trying to harm the other. Because anger destroys the person. Uh, you know, like Gandhi would say, that anger is like the like acid that not only has the destructive quality, but it destroys the vessel in which it is contained. The person who harbors the anger. The har- harbors the anger. 
So, you know, we are destroying our lives when we are obsessed with anger and we want somebody to pay for this and, and, and we are bent on making that person pay for it. Uh, we are destroying our, ourselves in the process there. Although the world often mourns those who are sacrificed in warfare, both combatants and civilians, advocates of nonviolent conflict resolution are sometimes dismissed as hopeless dreamers. How, it is argued, can peaceful non-cooperation possibly be expected to disarm the likes of mass murderers? Hitler and bin Laden and all of these people didn't emerge overnight and, and come to the conclusion that they were going to do all the nasty things that they did. It was brewing over a period of time and then they became uh, such tyrants and, you know, we noticed them only when they became tyrants. Until then, we just ignored them. A failure to prevent a problem exactly. before it mushroomed. If we had mushroomed. that culture of nonviolence, we would have seen the conflict before it became a crisis. And we would have done something at that time to uh, scotch the whole thing at that level uh, before people were killed and, and uh, all the nasty things were done there. But because we don't live in that kind of culture, we ignore all these things as long as it doesn't affect us. And then when it gets out of hand and it becomes uh, like 9-11 or the Holocaust or something, then everybody wakes up and say, hey, what went wrong here? And then you want to crush that movement. And today we, we succeeded in destroying Hitler. We succeeded in destroying the Nazi army. But we didn't succeed in destroying the hate that they propagated. That Nazi hate is still flourishing all over the world and it's growing uh, all the time because we ignored that part of it. We just attacked the person and destroyed him. Today we may attack and destroy bin Laden, but the, the thought and the philosophy that he has given birth to is spreading all over. And we'll never be able to destroy that because we are not concentrating on that at all. Mahatma Gandhi's long pursuit of Indian independence from Britain was finally realized in August 1947. But the ethnic tensions he worked so hard to ease, principally between Hindus and Muslims, were never fully reconciled. As a result, the country was partitioned, with Pakistan splitting off into a separate nation, a transition that provoked further violence, leaving Gandhi deeply dispirited. A half year later, as Gandhi walked down a garden path to communal afternoon prayers, a young man pulled out a pistol and shot him in the chest. Mahatma Gandhi died that day, January 30, 1948, at age 78 his grandson, Arun. It was just two months ago that I had left him and uh, that everything was still fresh in my mind. And I was so shaken by that. that uh, I expressed the desire to be there and throttle the person who did this. And that's when both my mother and father reminded me 
of the lesson that grandfather had taught me he said he wouldn't like it if you did that kind of thing we have to forgive that person and move ahead from it and so they have even even uh, at that moment of your mother's grief she had that understanding that grandfather had instilled in them that uh, revenge was not part of non-violence Dr. Arun Gandhi directs the MK Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence at the University of Rochester in New York. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal. Special thanks to Kathy Graham and Andy Lancet. Music from Rasa Music and the CD 1001 Ways. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with the Network Incorporated. Program development and support provided by Short Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5 L I S T E N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5 LISTEN and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, part 2 of Meeting Hate with Love, is Humankind program number 112. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. and at the top of the homepage click on how you can help again our web address is humanmedia.org thanks